If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 6. We will soon be reading verses 41 through 51 of that chapter. Jesus might have been a good man, but he was certainly not a normal man. He did many miracles before God and men. He was gifted as an incredible teacher who built a following through daring and outrageous things. He was compassionate to sinful people and demanding of his followers. And ultimately, he was completely devoted to what he conceived of as his mission, that he would die alone for that mission. He might be not a normal man, but for many people, thinking of him as God is something of a bridge too far. It is hard to conceive of this man in his normalcy, in his humanity, as also being God. What people really want is they want somebody like Superman. They want somebody who acts and looks and thinks as though he is God, invincible, so that he wields his power however he wants for good. When Superman originally was made, you realize he had absolutely no weaknesses whatsoever. The reason why kryptonite was brought to the, the idea of Superman was because on the radio program where Superman was being taken out into the wider world, the man who played the role of Superman on that radio program himself needed a week off. And so in order to give him a week off, they had to think of a reason why Superman wouldn't be on the air that week. And so they invented kryptonite. This is exactly what people want out of a god. They want somebody who acts and looks and walks like God. They want their conception of God. They want power. Jesus is not that God. He does not come to us as the God we want, but he is the God who is true. Jesus doesn't stop locomotives, even if they were around back then. He never seems to run faster than a speeding bullet, although he probably walked at a fairly good pace. He doesn't jump over buildings even with two bounds. He doesn't do any of the things that Superman does. He doesn't look like what we want him to look like. And certainly that was an issue, not only for us, but for the people who witnessed him do miracles. He still wasn't who they wanted him to be. Read with me John 6, 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of our God. The people in the synagogue here, as we read later in verse 40 or 59, excuse me, that this is happening in the synagogue, the people in the synagogue know Jesus' humanity better than anyone else. 
He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they're not so incensed yet, although they will be, about the bread part of it. They are really clearly disturbed by the fact that he says, I have come down from heaven. He's not really from heaven, you know. You can kind of hear him saying, I, I worked with Joseph on that synagogue project back in the day. I know him. I, I knew Mary when they first moved here. We used to go to the well and draw water together. I knew Jesus. We played together when he was a boy. I know this. He didn't come from heaven. He came from where everybody else comes from. He came from the womb of his mother. How can he say that he's come down from heaven? Implicitly, the people understood that Jesus' birth and presence with them from a young age forward implied that he might be a very nice and amiable, brilliant, but otherwise perfectly normal human being that God worked through. And if they knew that he was just human, then how could he get away with talking like this? He didn't just fall down from the sky. He came as a baby. And Jesus knows this problem. Jesus recognizes why they're grumbling and how they're grumbling. The problem about Jesus' origin is going to come up time and time again in God's gospel. They will talk about where he is from, but no one actually realizes who is other than Jesus, where Jesus has come from. Jesus will repeatedly say, I have been sent from the Father, and they will repeatedly think that he has simply been born by Mary in a place in Galilee. His origin as a human is clearly normal, but such an origin is confused for his true origin as being sent from God. He was indeed sent into the world to be a baby, to have parents, and to have friends, but this is not, not his true and everlasting origin. His everlasting origin is from the Father. And so Jesus tells people here not to grumble. Listen, they're acting exactly like the Israelites in the wilderness who didn't know the God who had just led them out into or led them out into the wilderness from Egypt. Standing in the wilderness, they thought we are going to die now because there's no food and there's no water here because they didn't understand the God who was standing there with them able to perform a miracle of giving them manna from nothing and water from a rock. And so these people stand in front of Jesus not knowing the God that stands in front of them and his ability to give them life from his own body. But the people shouldn't grumble. There are plenty of reasons for this. Today we are going to consider just three. We shouldn't grumble about Jesus' origins because his divinity is first revealed by the Father. It is revealed by the Father. Jesus again seems to repeat here what he said before using slightly different language but the same kind of thing. It was the Father who gave people to Jesus. If we go back up to verse 7, 37, excuse me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's the giving of the Father people, but here it is not the Father giving as though he's pushing them away to Jesus, but he is also then drawing them to Jesus. Here in our verses today, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father is drawing people. The fact that he is divine is revealed by the Father as the Father draws them to Jesus. So what does it mean for the Father to draw them? At the very least, it implies nothing more than election yet again. There is no way people can be drawn. If you, you might be able to consider that God has given people to Jesus as a category. And so from the foundations of the earth, God has stood there and said, okay, I will give my son and my son will come and he will be a sacrifice for people. And he will take their sins upon himself 
And when he does that, I will then freely justify them by raising him from the grave as he has made satisfaction for the wrath of God, both the son's wrath and the father's wrath and the spirit's wrath. He makes satisfaction for that. So I will choose anyone who believes to be part of that. You might believe that when it comes to saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. But it is really hard to square with these verses. It is the Father who draws, and he's not drawing a whole category of people. He's drawing isolated individuals. The one, no one, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is very, very explicit. You do not come to the Father unless the Father, or you don't come to Jesus unless the Father has drawn you to Jesus. The action is all on God. But it doesn't mean that he draws you through forcing. We have a big dog. She's a year old, and she is energetic, and on more than one occasion, I have watched that dog with her leash on, dragging one of my children across the yard, belly down, holding on for dear life, That is not the picture of God drawing you to Jesus, okay? He is not drawing you to Jesus by saying, you are coming with me whether you like it or not. Augustine talks about this, and he talks about the fact that that this, this whole idea of God drawing you can't be in violation of your will. That he must draw you in a certain way. He can can take you against your will to a church. He can take you against your will to the altar. He can take you against your will to the communion. He can take you against your will anywhere he wants to go, but he cannot make you against your will confess. Augustine says, when you confess, you are confessing from the heart. He can make you perhaps say words that you don't mean, but when it talks about belief, that has to come from you. Otherwise, it's not really belief. When we talk about something like irresistible grace, this is what we mean. We don't mean irresistible in that we want to resist it, but we can't. We mean irresistible like when I smell my wife cooking a pot roast. I walk in and I think, oh, that's, I'm going to have to eat a whole bunch of that, right? It's not, my wife isn't saying, you're going to eat this pot roast. That's not, that's not the irresistible type that we're talking about. It is, it is irresistible because we want it, we love it. And so the Father draws us in by making Christ magnificent. He doesn't do it through forcing. It's not through the molestation of a rapist against your will. It is through the gentle pleading of a lover. Listen, this is the type of language that the book of Hosea uses. In Hosea 2.14, talking about the spread of God's people around the world and God calling them back to himself. He doesn't say, I will go to the nations and I'm going to drag their limp bodies back here fighting and screaming. And no, he doesn't say that. He says in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That wilderness is the same wilderness, by the way, that the people rebelled against God. What does he do in that wilderness? He teaches them who he is. He displays his glory to them. That's why he gives them manna. The very idea of him giving manna is to show that he is God. This is not just the testimony of the Old Testament. This is clearly the testimony of the New Testament as well. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about those who read the Old Testament and they read it with a veil over their eyes. He's talking about the fact that they they continually go to the Old Testament and they don't see Christ there. They just see laws and they see regulations. They don't understand what they're reading. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16. But their minds are hardened for to this day When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But one, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You hear that language there? Their hearts are hardened. That's the same language that Paul uses of Pharaoh, that God uses of Pharaoh. Their hearts are hardened. They can't see the words that are before them. But they, he says, listen, when you turn to the Lord, that veil is removed. Well, how does one turn to the Lord? Later on in chapter four, one of my favorite passages, Paul tells us, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, God speaks and you believe and you see in Jesus Christ the knowledge of the glory of God. He sees knowledge. He teaches you head knowledge, intellect. You use your brains and heart, glory. There's something beautiful and magnificent about it. This is the way God draws you. He shows you who Jesus truly is. He pulls back the veil and you see him for who he is. Again, this is the entire point, by the way, of the giving of manna back in the, cha- in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 16, after the people grumble, God says, I will feed them with manna. Manna, which, by the way, appeared on the ground after the dew left, as though it just popped there. It didn't fall down from heaven. It seemed to have a perfectly natural, although mysterious origin, just like Jesus did. In Exodus 16, verses 11 through 12, we read this. The Lord says to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Jesus does the exact same. They grumble before him. So he gives them bread. He performs miracles that they might know that he is indeed God. Friends, Let's not grumble about Jesus' humanity. Don't, don't wish that you had a better depiction of him as God. Don't wish that he was standing here, God-like. I mean, there will come a day when that will happen, but his tarrying is for the good of his church that we might go out and win people. So don't, don't fear and don't grumble about Jesus' humanity when we are going out and evangelizing people as though it's going to make your evangelization easier if he were more God-like. Because it's not you who win people to the Lord. You plant seed and you water, but it is God who gives the growth. Let God do the growth how he wants to. Our explanations and our apologetics can be used by God in the way in which he will draw men, but that is ultimately God's choice. Let us not also wish it was different to make our own faith easier. Friend, God has drawn you if you believe and God will continue to draw you. He will continue to make Christ more magnificent, more beautiful, more glorious in your sight. He will continue to draw you through dark times, through wicked times, through evil times, through your own sin. God will draw you to the glory and the magnificence of Jesus Christ who gave his life for your sins. Don't wish you could see it easier. God will draw you. God alone can do these things. 
Let us pray that God does just that. Pray to him to reveal the glory of Christ to the world, to those who cannot see and have refused to see. Pray that God might open up their hearts to our neighbors and our families, to our coworkers, to our friends. Pray that, and then make yourself available to be the one who brings the gospel to them. God has ordained that he is not going to do this miraculously, but like the manna pops up off of the natural ground, so you are the one that God has called to go and do the work of proclaiming the gospel. Do so. Knowing that God is faithful to draw men and women to Christ. And pray not only for your neighbors to have that revelation, but pray that God will continue to reveal Christ to us as well. Not just yourself, but to your brothers and sisters here at Crossway. Pray earnestly for them. Do you know what's going to make us a holier church? You know what's going to make us a better church? You know what's going to witness to the glory of Christ more outside of these walls? Is if more of the glory of Christ is seen inside these walls. Pray for those things. Pray. Give yourself over to the study of the word, but pray, pray, and God will draw you to show you these things. But it isn't just God that reveals this. It's not just the Father that reveals this. It is also revealed by Jesus. Secondly, it is revealed by Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 46. He says, It's not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Listen, you can't be taught what you need to be taught. You cannot know what you need to know unless the one from the Father shows you. God needs to have revelation given of him. And so Jesus has been sent to be the revelation of him. You need knowledge, you need learning, you need a drawing of yourself, but Jesus himself is the one that comes from God to make himself known. For unless you are shown, you can never understand. This, frankly, is what stands behind our belief in the necessity of the revelation of God in Scripture. Everything else that you build your life on is nothing but sand. This week, an editorial came out in USA Today by somebody named Oliver Thomas. I don't know Mr. Thomas. He's much older than I am. He used to be a Southern Baptist. But when the conservative resurgence happened in Southern Baptist life in the 80s and the 90s, he found that he was kind of on the outside of that, and he moved to a different Baptist association. And he argues that we have been on the wrong side of understanding the word of God. The word of God is incomplete. It's not inerrant. And it's been wrong and shown to be wrong in a number of places. Specifically, he argues that we are wrong on the issue of LGBT. We're wrong on that. And he says, we know that we're wrong because we've been wrong on slavery. And we've been wrong on the, the roles of women before. And because we know that we're wrong on those things, there's no reason why we can't be wrong on this. And what he says is incredibly important. I have a very long quote from him, so... Buckle up. The most difficult challenges arise when the teachings of Scripture are contradicted by reason and experience. Most important words in all of the article that he writes. He says, when the teachings of Scripture are contradicted by reason and experience, slavery is the best or perhaps worst example. In hindsight, we can see the obvious. Love your neighbor as yourself does not leave room for the enslavement of others. Why are you quoting Scripture? It doesn't do to say that Scripture is not enough and then quote Scripture to show how Scripture is not enough. That's a second, that's just free. <laughs> but Southerners had Scripture on their side. Slaves were admonished to submit to their masters in the writings of both Peter and Paul. The Hebrew Scriptures likewise considered slavery as part of the divine order, but we knew better. 
Even so, it took a bloody civil war before Southern Christians came to grips with the fact that blacks were not inferior to whites and should not be systematically kidnapped, murdered, raped, and enslaved. Christian churches will continue hemorrhaging members and money at an alarming rate until we muster the courage to face the truth. We got it wrong on gays and lesbians. They shouldn't, this shouldn't alarm or surprise us. We have learned some things that the ancients, including Moses and Paul, simply did not know. Not even Jesus, who was fully human and therefore limited to what first century humans knew, could know about cancer, schizophrenia, atomic energy, and a million other things the centuries have taught us. Oh. If you guys wanted several hours, I could go on for several hours. There's a couple of things that are important about this. First of all, it's very odd that the reasons that slavery were outlawed were given by Christians. It was Christians, not atheists, who stood up against slavery. And it was Christians, not atheists, who said that the South was wrong in how they interpreted the Bible. So they, the whole reason why slavery was outdone wasn't because reason dropped out of the sky on a bunch of atheists and they said, we know by reason and, scripture, or by reason and experience that these things are wrong. No, it was wrong because scripture said it was wrong. They reasoned from scripture. Further, Scripture clearly deems kidnapping, murder, and raping to be sin, believe it or not. And it upholds the image of God in all people, whether white, black, or any other mixture of color. Further, it's clear, or it's not clear, that is, that Jesus' humanity meant he didn't know anything about cancer, schizophrenia, or atomic energy. What good would it have done Jesus to pontificate about atomic energy to first century Jews? I am very puzzled by that. And the statement that he didn't know about things in the 21st century because he didn't talk about them back then is incredibly puzzling, but even more puzzling when it comes to sexual ethics. And I'm, I'm honestly puzzled. What have we learned? What precisely have we learned about LGBTQ? That Paul, Moses, and Jesus wouldn't have known. The whole problem here is is found in the fact that even the way he talks about Southern people, he talks that the Southerners wanted to enslave a race of people. And then in the very next line he says, but we knew better. Who is we, friend? It doesn't include Southern people. Reason and experience are incredibly malleable. That's why it's like building in sand. Your reason and experience for wanting LGBTQ people included in the church wouldn't fly in the Middle East, where you are discounting their reasons and their experience. It's only the reason and experience of him that matters and the people that he know. He knows that support LGBTQ actions and lives. If we want to know God, man, are we going to stand on our own reasons? Isn't this exactly what Eve did? She looked at the fruit. She said, oh, it looks good. It probably tastes good. It would make me wise. Listen, I can be honest with you. The more I live, the more I see the actions of human beings and I realize my own actions, we are not reasonable creatures. We do not make decisions based off of reason. We make decisions not because we've reasoned it out. Reason is used only afterward. We do what we do because we want to do it, and we use reason to justify our actions. Reason is hardly the reason that causes anything. So are we supposed to believe in our own reasons? Are we supposed to trust other people's reasons? Where are we supposed to stop? 
Do we lack reason and experience, Mr. Thomas? Why is our reason and experience downplayed? Why is 2,000 years of Christian reason and experience downplayed because of 30 years of different reason and experience? Where are we supposed to go then from here? You gonna stand on your reason and experience? Even if you align with scripture on that point, you are a fool to do that. That's nothing but sand. No. In order to untangle ourselves from this horrible web of reason and experience, we need the word of God to cut us free. Jesus says that there is one who can. He says, don't you remember that it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. What an amazing statement. That is a promise in the book of Isaiah. A promise in the book of Isaiah. In the revelation of God, part of that revelation is a promise that they will be taught by God. Are we to think that Isaiah didn't think that his words were the words of God or the words of the prophets before him were the words of God or the whole Pentateuch was not the word of God? No, it was the word of God. It did come down to us from God. But what he is saying is you need somebody to teach it to you. Part of the problem that Mr. Thomas has is he doesn't have people who can rightly teach it and he hasn't listened to the church history that has proclaimed how you teach it. It is quite a claim that you will be taught by God. Jesus has now come to help us understand it. Jesus has now come because he is the one who is from God to help illuminate the meaning of the Old Testament in ways that we could never have anticipated. Listen to what the people on the road to Emmaus say in Luke 24, 25 through 32. We're gonna skip some of the verses in there. These people are walking on the road and Jesus walks up next to him. And they're talking, they don't recognize him, and they're talking about what has happened in Jerusalem in the recent days after Jesus is Jesus has been resurrected. And they're, they're wondering if maybe this guy was actually the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah, but they're unsure. And Jesus says to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And as they got closer to the village, Jesus was still hidden from them. And then he reveals who he is to them. And they say, when they were at table with him, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked with us on the road when he opened up to us the scriptures? That is precisely the work that Jesus Christ does. This is exactly what he says, I've sent the Spirit for in John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will lead you into all truth. You have the scriptures. But now God will reveal what they mean to you. God will use the Holy Spirit to unveil them to you. Jesus will use those scriptures to draw you to himself. This is why, this is why these words are the foundation of everything that we believe. This is why we don't build on our own reason and our own experience. It's nothing but sand. But we have one who can interpret the scripture for us, who helps us to know the very will of God as God has shown himself. We cannot climb up to God, so God brings himself to us. Let us be like those in Thessalonica who Paul writes about when he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God 
which is at work in you believers. Friends, don't grumble because the word doesn't say what you want it to say. Don't grumble because God doesn't look how you want him to look. Don't grumble because God doesn't act like you want him to act. Repent and believe. Trust that what God has proclaimed himself to be, he is. Trust that what Jesus proclaims God to be, he indeed is. For those who are willing to humble themselves in this, you will find that he is nothing less than the truth of God, even if he is in human form, and that in him is nothing less than life. But thirdly, it is also revealed by faith. It is also revealed by faith. In verse 47, it is whoever believes that has eternal life. Belief is central to everything that Jesus has come to do. The Father is drawing you not simply to fill your hearts with glory and to fill your heads with knowledge, but to fill you with trust and belief. That is the work of God. He comes and imparts knowledge and desire to you to show you Jesus so that you will believe that he is God, so that you will believe that God has sacrificed himself and taken on his own wrath for your sins, so that you will believe that God has raised him from the dead so that you might be justified and declared innocent of everything that you have ever done wrong, so that you might have eternal life and live with him forever. Part of what you must believe then is that Jesus is indeed the bread of life, and he's not like the manna. The manna was able to give the people of Israel physical life while they were there, but it didn't give them knowledge or holiness. In their rebellion against God, he allowed them to die in the wilderness even while he was feeding them manna. The bread that he gave to them, they ate, and Jesus says very unceremoniously, and they died. This is not the bread that I'm giving to you. This bread is to be eaten so that you will never die. And Jesus, like he does in John, seems to be repeating himself again. But verse 51 is significantly different in one way. It's not just the bread of life, the bread that can give life, but he says, I am the living bread. Whatever that bread was before, it is dead. It was never living. It didn't have feet to crawl away. It couldn't reproduce. It couldn't affect its environment or change according to its environment. It sat there like a loaf of bread because it was literally just a loaf of bread. It was dead. But he says, my body, which I'm giving for you, will always live. And it's important. It's important that Jesus' flesh lives, that what we partake of lives. Listen, if you were going to build a car, I don't know why, but you're just gonna have to roll with it. If you're gonna build a car, that car is going to need energy to get from point A to point B. So you could throw a couple of AA batteries in there, but it's not gonna do you much, and so you're gonna move up eventually to a gas. And when you go up to gas, you're gonna get a little gas tank. You're gonna get one like the size of a push mower. You're gonna get half a mile down the road, and you're gonna run out, and you're gonna think, all I need is a bigger tank. And you can get a bigger tank, and you can get a bigger tank, and eventually you can go four or 500 miles with a big tank of gas. And you think to yourself, self, it would be really excellent is if I could hook myself up to a tank of gas that would never run out, energy that promotes itself in all of its ways, energy that comes from everywhere, life that comes from life. Friends, bread is dead energy. It will get you through the day, but it cannot give you eternal life. Jesus' body is the living bread. And because his living body was broken and then remade in the resurrection, you have access through belief to an everlasting life. That is what Jesus is saying here. And notice that eating the bread and believing are the same thing. It's the same thing. It is in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And he talks about then, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In verse 51, the two are the same. 
So you live forever by believing in him. You consume the body of Jesus Christ by believing that he indeed has given his body for your sins and it has been resurrected for your justification. Friends, don't grumble about the need we have of God and Jesus to make life known to us. Your grumbling is precisely the opposite reaction from that which is needed and desired by God. Grumbling is the opposite of believing and trusting in faith. You shouldn't grumble, but you should simply trust and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has been sent to make atonement for us in our sins and to bring us into fellowship with his heavenly Father. So what does it mean to eat the body of Jesus? Well, while we said it, it certainly means that we believe, those two pictures beautifully come together here at this table. As we, through God's providence, celebrate the Lord's Supper here today, it is a wonderful picture of what we've been talking about. As we are nourished by bread, so we are nourished by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And here, we symbolize precisely what we believe. The body is broken for us, and through our faith, we are nourished by his life in the resurrection. So friends, even as we have already contemplated the truth of Christ as God and his truth as our living bread, let us prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Father, what a blessing you have given us in Christ. We do not have bread that perishes, but through the resurrection we get to partake of everlasting bread, bread that will always provide for us life, even in and through our death. We pray that you may give us better eyes to see this truth today, better ears to believe it, and in doing so, keep us from grumbling and doubting your word. Do this, we pray, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.